One of these days we're going to have to record one of these where I mark it explicit. What do you mean? So I can just... Unload? Unload. <laughs> <laughs> you feeling some pent-up bile that you need to, you know... Yeah, if we could... Clear the system. Do a hard reboot. <laughs> Don't you think? Yeah. Hello? Professor Madison. Christian. How are you? I'm doing damn well. How are you? <laughs> funny, <laughs> funny you would answer that way. We were just talking about cussing. <laughs> and you cussed. There we are. There we are. Oh. It, it's actually, you know, uh, it's an appropriately cool, but kind of bright winter day here. And we haven't had a ton of those. It's either been weirdly warm or freakishly cold. And so normal is welcome. Uh, we've got a, a sort of abnormally warm and quite sunny uh, yesterday and today. So we're, we're, we're working on a slightly different modality. Well, everything is up in the air these days. So I'm just going to I'm going to take it one day at a time. And question. Well, let's 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 limit one of those degrees of freedom by clarifying you're, you're Michael J. Madison. I'm, I'm assuming that the J stands for Jehoshaphat. Is that yeah. is, is that correct? Uh, if if that's what if that what's work what works for you, Joe, that's absolutely fine. Uh, I I am you know I am I am named in part for my father, uh, who is also a lawyer. And uh, when people ask him, "Are you the James Madison?" He says, "Yes, he is." <laughs> He doesn't so say no. I am a James Madison. Uh, correct, but but that's that's truthfully that's where the J comes from. Ah, all right. I think Jehoshaphat is uh, suits you better personally, but because I think you, uh, in so many ways, you are an exclamation. You are a prophet. You are uh, you are a, a force of nature. I think sir. you're projecting because I think Joe is short <laughs> for Jehoshaphat. Oh well, you raise an interesting possibility there. You know, Joe, I've always wanted a compelling nickname, and I've never had one. So if you want to take your insight and run with that in some, uh, you know, declamatory, casual way on my behalf, you are authorized by all means to do so. I've never been better positioned, as you may, as you may know, I, I am now the chair of the AALS IP section. What? And so, yeah. What? And when so, did this happen? So, uh, well, I was the chair elect last year, and now I'm the chair as of January. And so wow. I can ex cathedra um, <laughs> uh, simply <laughs> proclaim uh, that uh, this is the year of the Jehoshaphat. Uh, and by, by that, I mean Michael Jehoshaphat Madison. So uh, let it be said, so let it be done. Uh, I'm, all, I'm all in, Joe. Although, <laughs> although, you know, if I were in your seat... Uh, I would I would give some serious thought to exercising your plenary authority in an even more robust and broad way. That is, not only uh, you know adopting my identity for whatever purpose you use, wish to use it, but but to do so on behalf of other colleagues as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would you know these are intriguing thoughts. <laughs> I I can you know it's so hard for me to think about anything other than autocrats using their plenary authority to enrich their buddies <laughs> yeah. right now. Um, and, and so this conversation, I thought, was supposed to be a break from that, wasn't it, Joe? I think. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no. And and we're we're still at the stage uh, of self-aggrandizement. We're n- we're not yet at the stage of of self uh, uh, enrichment, uh, mm. literal wealth, self-directed wealth creation. I'll get to that, <laughs> or, or 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 so or so we all assume. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. Um, 
Dear listeners, you can tell we're joined by Michael Madison, a professor at, at the University of Pittsburgh Law School, to talk about a fun paper. For the second time. We're joined by, by Mike for the second time. That's true, although the last time we did not talk about this new paper. No. Because it wasn't, it didn't exist then, except notionally, in the future. Right? It, it existed on my end. It didn't exist in your field of vision. Right. Um, so, so, information abundance. The reason this is such a great, you know, we tried... Well, dear listeners, you will now learn that I, we have been trying to get Mike on for a while, and Mike is in a great demand, as befits a man uh, with the name Jehoshaphat. Uh, but, 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 and so it's been quite difficult. But, um, but the timing, it turns out, uh, was, was uh, fate guided our hand, because just this week, as I started a new semester of the IP survey course, uh, and I began, as I do, uh, with... Uh, the under the risk of underproduction in intangibles and the INS against AP case, the famous case, which will turn a hundred years old next year, uh, and uh, the uh, more recent, much more recent, Barclays uh, against the fly on the wall um, uh, sort of news headline case from the Second Circuit in 2011. Um, you know, this, these questions that IP tends to focus on in the classic sense, the problems of underproduction and distribution. And that solving that problem with this false scarcity, this exclusion right, um, it, the timing is great because your paper is, is sort of like, hey, wait a minute, that's that's such a an impov- in a way such an impoverished sort of story um, uh, that we should all now hang our head in shame as we tell it. Um, of course, I did not hang my head in shame, um, but. Uh, but it's inspiring to think about uh, what I can do to to augment my survey class over the course of the semester with this in front of mind. Um, but so tell us, tell us about, uh, tell us why we're we're sort of sitting in ash without realizing it, where this IP story is concerned. Well, I don't want anybody to hold their heads in in shame, Joe. You should always hold your head high, especially uh, <laughs> given your own work as well as your presence uh, in the classroom. But um, <laughs> so let me briefly put this particular paper in its sort of broader intellectual context, because I want to make sure that the the, the abundance point doesn't wag the knowledge commons dog, which is really, the two things go together in the context of the paper, but the, the dominant theme is the, so the broader intellectual framework and the, in, the abundance of knowledge resources or creative resources or however you wish to characterize them. That's sort of the, the point of entry as a provocation to get people thinking in this broader way. Mm. Um, right, so, so the paper is one work product of a much longer research program that I've been involved with for 10 years with two colleagues who you, Joe, you know well, and and Christian, you may know or at least know of. One is Brett Frischman at Cardozo Law School, and the other is Kathy Strandberg at NYU, both awesome IP colleagues. Um, And uh, the three of us started a conversation 10 years ago uh, that came out of our independent lines of research. And Joe, I, you were very much a part of some of these conversations in a very important way very early on uh, around uh, some themes in our own work then, 10 years ago, looking at IP law and IP history and IP theory that in different respects manifested the inadequacies of the standard 
tragedy of the commons story that permeates IP doctrine and IP teaching and IP history. Um, and, and so what we set about to do 10 years ago and have been doing in different respects ever since is building a research program around uh, a research framework that we call Knowledge Commons, which is a way of investigating institutional solutions to various problems and challenges associated with knowledge and information resources of different sorts. Um, so IP law occupies a place in that research enterprise. So part of the question that we're trying to answer is what role does IP law play in these institutional dynamics surrounding the production of new things that are we call creative works or innovative inventions or other such things. Uh, but what other modalities operate in tandem with IP law or is alternatives to IP law? And can you do that research project in a systematic way so that you can eventually system, uh, synthesize some generalizable lessons and eventually come up with prescriptions and policy payoffs and that sort of thing? So uh, this particular paper was uh, one effort within that broader long-term big umbrella program to articulate one salient piece of that program uh, and to do so by highlighting one dimension of the resource question, meaning the, the contrast between the presumption that these intellectual resources are scarce and so we have to manage them because they're so fragile uh, on the one hand and the other perspective, which is what I put out there in the paper, which is that these things, these knowledge things or in information things are, are naturally abundant. And then we, have, we can talk a little bit about what that means so that the, the baseline resource production, resource allocation, resource management problem is actually different uh, as a conceptual matter that, than the one that IP lawyers and scholars think that they're dealing with. Um, so it, it, I think that particular piece of it, the abundance versus scarcity piece of it, is definitely worth talking about because it's definitely uh, an unorthodox provocation. But it's really a way into this broader question of how to study sort of institutional dynamics in the knowledge and information space in a comprehensive way that embraces classic IP stuff but is not limited only to studying classic IP stuff. Can I make some dumb, dumb points just to, you know, as someone who's not an IP person. I think you, know, you should play to your strength. Other than playing <laughs> go for play, it. Playing one in the classroom sometimes. And, and when I want to argue with Joe, I, I have no problems with my lack of expertise when it comes to arguing with Joe. Um, as you know, Joe, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't stop me, does it? Not at all. No. Nor should it. So, so, so as I understand it, you know, in, in the story that, students always see with, with IP uh, um, it be, it being introduced to IP is this underproduction problem, right? That it, basically there's kind of a transactional model, which is either explicit or implicit that uh, people are rational actors. They have a certain amount of time um, to devote labor one way or that way or to substitute it for leisure. And when deciding whether to devote it to producing something which is easily copied and, and may constitute a public good, Unless they get exclusion rights, they may not do it. Unless they can capture at least enough of the benefits to exceed their own input costs, they won't do it. And hopefully society gets those the 
you know, kind of the 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 excess benefits beyond what's needed for compensation, and then ultimately uh, the things go in the public domain. But so the upshot is that you know we think that people are are are, are lazy or have other opportunities, whatever it is, and and they're not going to write the next great American novel unless they're compensated. So it's this very kind of transactional cost ben- individual cost benefit picture, and you guys have looked at. Other, like other, you're not the only scholars to do this, but you look at like open source software, um, other kinds of cooperative um, ventures where people seem to be producing things and and like technology spillovers in places like Silicon Valley and other places where it doesn't seem, you know, where where, um, where people share knowledge, even if sometimes they shouldn't, I guess. But uh, uh, it, where that transactional model doesn't seem to explain why people produce the knowledge that they do, why they produce, say, YouTube videos, or why they produce contributions to open source software, or why they get together in, in kind of uh, um, uh, large patent groups. Uh, and, and to understand that, you say, you know what, maybe we should look at other situations where people cooperate and use techniques that are... Maybe I'm out on a limb here, Joe, but but use techniques and and visions of the world that are much more complicated than the transactional model. And one of those visions of the world is you know Eleanor Ostrom's famous model for governing the commons, where she breaks down kind of um, uh, group based enterprises into more than kind of individual cost benefit calculations, but one that takes account of kind of the socio economic and cultural moment that they're in, the kinds of decision-making structures they generate, the scope of perceived outcomes. And there's a kind of a complicated institutional dynamics model. And then you guys kind of – you say that model can apply um, here, but it has to be adapted. And one of the reasons that it has to be adapted is because she generated her model in the context of well, classic tragedies of the commons. These are farmers uh, or ranchers on common rangeland, people exploiting environmental resources. Like a fishery or a, or a tree area right. or something. Where, where the key problem is among those folks, unless they can somehow exercise some mutual restraint or some some governance, they're going to deplete the resource and, and, and use it suboptimally, if yeah. not completely destroy it altogether. And so her research is, has focused on uh, not just the formal law that they use or, or that is put upon them to solve that problem, but the way that they create norms together and work together to govern in the commons. And you say, well, there's a similar kind of problem here, but in, there's not a scarcity problem. There's, a, um, uh, there's a, I guess, an abundance problem. And I don't, it's, take it from there, Joe, because I'm, I'm at kind of the limits of my spinning this out. Well, I mean, one one thing I would say is that the the way you began the story, the the sort of simple story, I think that's the most blunt version of it. You can tell a slightly less blunt version that I think is is um, in a way more congenial to this other insight and makes it a little less mysterious. That that. You could say there there may be circumstances under which people will underproduce if they can't figure out how they're going to cover their costs of investment in coming up with a new idea, writing a new novel, developing a new patent formula, whatever. Um, there may be circumstances like that. Of course, we can all see there are plenty of circumstances where people do create without regard to cost recovery. Uh, either because they're in an institutional setting, like they're a university professor and they're paid to do basic research, uh, or people who just do it because it, it provides them pleasure. Someone who enjoys going out and painting on the on the shore of a lake that they live near, that person is engaged in creative acts, and they do it, and the compensation, as it were, is the, the pleasure they derive, right? So we see in the world, there's plenty of creativity and expression and development of new information uh, that happens in the absence of a worry about recovering costs of 
R&D. People who uh, decide to spend a lot of time recording a podcast together, even though they frustrate each other all the time. Yeah, that's a great example. Okay. Right? So, yeah. <laughs> so there, are, there, are plenty of, there are plenty of examples. However, you can, you can again, alongside those, you can, you can see that there are some other instances in the world where that might not get you enough of the sorts of information goods that you're interested in getting. And that certainly uh, the historical record suggests that many people have over hundreds of years reached that conclusion repeatedly uh, that, that relying on that stuff alone isn't going to quite cut it. Uh, and therefore they create an alternative way to encourage creation and distribution of these information goods. Now I, I think that makes, I think the, the knowledge commons uh, thing that that Mike and Kathy and Brett have done that's so uh, powerful and interesting. I think what, it makes it a little bit less mysterious because what they're saying is, look, we could just or and Mike, you'll finally uh, uh, correct us both, right? But it seems <laughs> to me like what you're saying is, look, uh, creation and distribution, yeah, that's a set of concerns. Coordination and combination is another set of concerns. Huge, yeah. And and, and as soon as you're in a world with abundant information things. However, they got encouraged, whether they were encouraged because it blissed you out to produce it or it got encouraged because you got paid to do it or whatever. Right. But once all that stuff is there, then if you turn to the coordination and combination questions, the hey, you get to exclude each other isn't quite on point. Right. Exclusion isn't the name of the game. The name of the game is not excluding. It's cooperating. Yeah, because the, the so the example one of the examples in the paper the Linux kernel doesn't run if we're all just creating the code that we really want to create, <laughs> right? and then stop everyone else from using it. Right, exactly. Right, which is what the IP model is about: giving you a right to exclude to achieve an objective. Right. So, Mike, set us right here. What's going on? Uh, you guys are doing great. I would just sort of sit back and and and, uh, <laughs> and, and let you guys continue to spin it out. But let me let me pick up on a couple of notes. Um, so one is I, I'm glad that Christian introduced Eleanor Ostrom's work because obviously we are very heavily influenced by and inspired by her example. Uh, but as Christian points out, there are some critical ways in which how. We've borrowed her original insights and uh, started to apply it in the knowledge and information space, require elaborating the Ostrom insight in some different ways to account for some various um, environmental or structural differences. Uh, but the, the idea of focusing on the, the, the institutional layer, sort of the institutional ecological layers of knowledge production and circulation and so forth, I think comes from her insight that focusing on natural ecologies was the really a very, very productive and important way to look at how natural resources are produced and managed. Uh, the, the second note to sort of emphasize in how Christian framed that is that focusing on individual motivations, individual behavior, individual incentives, and really substantially tweaking our baseline intuitions about rational interest, self-interest, the nature of coordinated behavior and so forth is absolutely uh, a big part of our project. And so let me focus on that for a moment um, because it really harkens back to something that was really central to Ostrom's world. And so we've brought that forward, but then added layers onto it, right? So uh, Ostrom's key starting point was really a starting point about politics 
and uh, philosophical commitments to, to various political positions. Eleanor Ostrom came of age as a researcher and as a junior scholar around the time that Garrett Hardin published his very, very famous paper that has been cited thousands of times, sort of documenting and telling the story of the tragedy of the commons. So the concept of a tragic commons existed in the literature before Garrett Hardin came along in the late 1960s, but he made it concrete and vivid in a paper in the journal Science that seems to have anchored all social science and legal research uh, ever since. So anybody <laughs> who ever says tragedy of the commons in a journal article today seems to be involuntarily compelled to cite Garrett Hardin. Right. And, uh, and, and Hardin's ver version of the tragic commons story focused on food production and population dynamics. Right? So this was part of the era of 1960s uh, sort of agriculture policy when everybody could see that populations were exploding in underdeveloped countries, yet food production was not keeping pace. So there was all this anxiety in the 1960s that there would be all these uh, you know, empty stomachs and open mouths, and what were we all going to do? And something needed to be done as a top-down, coordinated public policy solution to bring all this into equilibrium. And Hardin's tragedy of the commons paper was an intervention in that dialogue that basically said this food supply population a problem is an example and illustration and a very compelling one of the tragic commons and people he argued ordinary people citizens at the local level could not get together and coordinate their own behavior to manage their way to solutions that was his basic point that the state needed to intervene, allocate private property interests, and then allow those to be traded in markets. And that was the only way that this imbalance in resource production and distribution could be managed. Ostrom came into that landscape and said, as a political matter, as a matter of political commitment, she had greater faith that people could manage their own affairs. Right, so the empirical agenda that she set out with and the point that she was trying to document through very painstaking case-by-case -case research was the idea that at the local level, people could manage their own affairs in a coordinated way without being told what to do, without top-down policy prescriptions or legal mandates that required that resources be allocated in a certain way to avoid the overconsumption and deletion, uh, depletion problem. Right, so the, the, the intuition on her part was self-management, self-coordination, community governance was feasible, and she was trying to prove that. And part of that agenda, interestingly enough, was to distinguish what was happening at the local level with fisheries and forests and grazing pastures and the like and water rights systems, was to distinguish what was going on from formal property rights systems. This eventually sort of became an article of faith among her uh, grad students and the later generations of folks who got their PhDs in the Austrian program that uh, formal positive law, the sort of stuff that law professors sort of prioritize as a natural matter, really was antithetical to the kind of community self-governance that she was trying to document. Uh, so when when Brett and Kathy and I first started wandering around conferences around the world, presenting our initial attempts to adapt the Ostrom framework into the copyright space or the patent space or, or equivalents, uh, you know, we obviously got acquainted with folks who were well-established in the Ostrom landscape. We had some interactions that were very, really productive and delightful with Eleanor Ostrom herself before she passed away.
And the reaction that we got was, what we're doing with this knowledge common stuff is awesome, but you guys are making a terrible mistake by thinking that copyright law or patent law has anything to do with this stuff. Because it's too formal. It's too exactly. it's too much formal law. I mean, it's funny that I don't think it was in her early work, but um, not only uh, demonstrating the possibility of this much less formal or you could say more informal sort of bottom up private ordering um, that that uh, a certain delight in some of the later work on irrigation systems in particular, I think, showing that uh, sort of top down administered programs from the national level down into local uh, areas is downright pathological uh, yes. because it fails to take advantage of the emergent knowledge and and local circumstance that people on the ground know and would incorporate and take into account if they were doing things on their own. Uh, whereas you know distant bureaucrats kind of are bound to fail; uh, they'll succeed only by the strangest accident, given all that they don't know about local circumstance. I should have been calling you Hayek rather than Smith all these. <laughs> All these years. <laughs> I was characterizing Ostrom's uh, yeah, work, yeah. not my own. Um, but uh, 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 so it's it's sort of a fun. It went. I think it went beyond. At a certain point, it went beyond simply saying this is possible into saying this is preferable. And and you right. kind of just backed that up by suggesting that there's a way in which from this Ostrom school of thought, um, it would be quite shocking to see that f the most formal versions of law be woven into the very fabric of the approach. Right. So what's been very interesting as our work has progressed over the last 10 years, and we've had more and more publications and public aspects to it, uh, we, we have multiple audiences for what we're doing. So obviously one audience is the community of, of legal scholars and lawyers and, and, uh, and, and law students in the U.S. and beyond, but we're also engaged in a dialogue with the, the Ostrom based social science research community itself, which has uh, gradually, and a hap I'm happy to say, uh, happily uh, sort of welcomed our uh, intervention uh, as a way of helping to educate that community, that is the, the, the group of sociologists and political scientists and economists who are trained in Ostrom's disciplines, uh, to understand that there is a, a potential complementarity between formal positive legal structures and this bottom-up legal ordering. Uh, and so what, some of the stuff that we're doing in the knowledge and information space now is starting to cycle back into the continuing work in the natural resources domain and environmental science and public health and some of the things that had already been underway in, in the Ostrom in the domain. So it's sort of interesting to see how, uh, you know, we were sort of inspired by and motivated by Ostrom's style of research, and now what we've been able to accomplish to date seems to be circulating back into the Ostrom world as well. Um, and I guess so from a side note, maybe Christian will say, as the HLA heart uh, person in the room, that um, you know that's it's 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 not surprising. This is all actually law already. Right. That it's there's primary rules and secondary rules. And uh, there are systems where people are creating these uh, orders inter interlocking that systems understand from an internal yeah. point of view, blah, blah, blah. So it's uh, from Hart's point of view. It is all law anyway. Some of it's more formal than than others of it. But it is all law. Right, Christian? Yes. I mean, these governance <laughs> models, it's all law. Right, right. So I it's mean, only because they had a different understanding that the Ostrom scholars had a different understanding of what the what the referent of the word law was. Well, I think, you know, so so 
where Garrett Hardin is clearly correct, right, is in identifying these situations in in which without some kind of mutual restraint and mutual – and he didn't – he uses the word restraint more than coordination. But without some kind of mutual coordination, you will have individual siloed rational action lead to ruin, yeah. right? Or it, and the, the flip side of that is is underproduction, right, if you want to take it to the, to the knowledge domain. And <coughs> – the um, so the the form of that restraint can be can, can be multiple in terms of the, the the number of different kinds of institutions and their connections and so I think again you know I think do we, a participant will perceive the restraints on his or her conduct in different ways and there's no one right way to perceive how these things work together but you know there's a whole cottage industry and. And looking at private ground up law, the lobster gangs of Maine and all this, you know, all this stuff that people are familiar with. And it's kind of fun. Yeah, it's it's really fun. I, I want to um, – can I ask a, a slightly different question though? Please. Um, so I, I don't know if this is the only distinction or the distinction that drives the divergence of of, of your model, Mike, from, um, uh, from, uh, from Ostrom's model. Um, but th- this distinction between – the focus on natural resource coordination problems is one of avoiding tragedy owing to uh, uh, um, exploiting a scarce resource versus in the knowledge domain avoiding a kind of tragedy from underproduction. You know, there's this great thing we could do together, but without getting the incentives right and without getting the coordination right, we won't we won't produce enough, right? So we won't produce the Linux kernel if we can't somehow uh, coordinate in order to get people to do that. And, and it's not overconsumption, it's vitocracy. It's the fact that too many people have rights to say no, that we might never get together and mutually say yes. At least that's how it strikes me, yeah. that that's the primary problem. Yeah, well, but those are those are two distinct, overlapping, but I would characterize as th- those as both potentially relevant things to be worried about. Um, in other words, I don't think any, I don't think there's a single model that our research framework directs people to ask about, and I don't think that there's a single potential dilemma that applies to all of these different kinds or, or examples of intellectual stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I, I took your distinction from, you know, the reason you don't borrow Ostrom's IAD framework wholesale is because of this, the distinct problems that occur in what you call cultural commons, right? This idea of like getting people to produce together. Rather right. than getting them to restrain, right? And, and I just wanted to, um, first of all, I don't know if that's how you would characterize it, but but secondly, uh, I, there, you know, as I was reading this today, I, just nagging me in the back of my mind is wondering whether these are really different, or if we just, if you if you view the resource slightly differently, whether they're exactly equivalent. And so, if the resource that you're looking at is like how much stuff are we producing, then it looks like a an abundance problem rather than a scarcity problem. But if you look at the pool of labor in a group of people, which will be directed towards some common good, then that is a resource which you are worried will be, uh, uh, will be, um, will be driven down to zero, just like the grass growing in the rangeland. And you, you know what I mean? And so if that's the case, then you could somehow flip the model and just apply Ostrom, it is a natural resource problem, right? But the but the resource is not the the Linux kernel or the stuff that will be produced. It is the um, it, it is the labor that individuals, the creative labor that individuals w- will uh, devote to the common project. Right. So what I would 
the, I guess the way we have learned to think about that issue is that we have kind of a loose, uh, a loose presupposition, let's say, about what counts as a knowledge commons domain to which our set of research questions is potentially applicable. Uh, so it could be Linux, it could be Wikipedia, there are the other things that are illustrated in the in the paper that that's prompting all of this. Uh, we have learned that in any one of those domains, any one of these cases that we pick up and say, here's an illustration of a structured knowledge sharing domain that we need to know more about and we need a structure for asking intelligible and comparative questions about, there may turn out to be more than one resource pool that is creating potential dilemmas. Uh, and so each of those different resource pools is maybe subject to different uh, production dilemmas or coordination dilemmas or sustainability dilemmas. And so in some in some, some cases, the abundance problem may dominate. In some cases, when you focus on a limited pool of time or expertise, for example, relevant to the, the people involved, it may be a scarce resource or potentially scarce resource. Uh, to the extent that the resource set is material uh, and therefore subject to depletability concerns because of its materiality, the physicality of it, that's a different set of uh, analyses and implications uh, that you derive compared to focusing on the immaterial intellectual content, the copyrighted work or the patentable invention or the knowledge domain that those things relate to. Uh, so if you actually go start looking through the cases that, that we've documented or that people have contributed to the, the collective uh, work product of the, pro, of the research program have documented, uh, people have, we've all learned to get really nuanced and careful about not focusing on just the single IP-ish looking problem, but trying to, to disentangle all of the different threads associated with production, coordination, sustainability, depletability, if relevant, and then trying to see how the different stories align or overlap or point in slightly different directions. So we're not, we're not trying to sort of stay true to a single narrative regarding what the underlying problem is and what the ultimate solutions should be. Which has sort of an ethnographic flavor. You're, you're sort of, you're coming to it with a bunch of questions and you're trying to genuinely discern from what you're hearing by, from community members uh, what the issues of concern to them are? What are the resources that are that are germane, and what are the dilemmas that they pose? Right, and that's ex if you go into the the more elaborate case study versions of some of the stuff that's documented in this paper. That's exactly the the sense that you'll take away from reading the longer versions of them, that there is a quasi-ethnographic character to each of these case studies. What's intriguing about it is that none of us who have participated in producing these cases are ethnographers or trained as ethnographers ourselves. Uh, we have legal scholars, we have economists, we have sociologists, we have public health people, we have historians, we have people from all kinds of different research traditions who are contributing analyses of these case studies. So the, the ethnographic perspective is very relevant, but it becomes almost metaphorical because people are really bringing 
sort of legal analytic tools to the project and then translating their legal 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 analytic skills through the research framework that we've set out the economists bringing economist tools but translating those through the same framework so there's a commonality of perspective because everybody is expected to use the same set of research questions but then there's a layer of distinction because some of this has more of an economics color some of it has more of a sociological color some of it has a more legal color or historical color and the like and that's purposeful on our part in designing the program this way because we're trying to sort of demonstrate through uh, through action as well as through payoff the plurality of perspectives that's relevant here the heterogeneity of tradition and understanding that's needed uh, with with this sort of stuff um, so you know that's frustrating in a sense right because the instinct with a lot of legal scholarship, a lot of the stuff that shows up in the law reviews is for some law professor to have a research question about some aspect of law or policy, to identify one particular case, either a judicial case or a, a case of behavior in the world, and to take that particular case apart with a lot of thought and care and detail, and then to derive some policy prescription or normative recommendation or payoff from analysis of that one case. And we are, in our Knowledge Commons work, really trying to resist that. We're really, as much as we can, trying to resist drawing strong inferences or conclusions from too small a data set. Can I circle back, uh, Christian, and ask you about this this question of labor, if labor is the resource in that, that one is uh, reflecting on and examining yeah. and asking about? Um, would it be any different if it were um, labor of, of splitting logs or, or um, you know, uh, hoeing a line in a field than labor creating a new song or like how is – You're right. I mean so the, the way that I was thinking about it, right, is that the, the available labor you have is a scarce resource and is depletable. You can, you can deplete it through labor devoted outside of the cultural community or to leisure, right? And and so the way that I was thinking about it is that that the you know, in Garrett Hardin's example, the the rancher will put another cow out there and keep putting another cow out there because he or she can't trust the other ranchers and eventually all the cows will munch the grass and they'll all get skinnier and they'll all die and we get this death spiral, right? <laughs> and but so too if you know, this is the the typical kind of free rider explanation but maybe in a, a different perspective, but uh that you know, if I can't trust the others to work on this common project, then I will use my labor in a different way. Because what's the point, right? Of that's just a typical kind of free rider observation, but it's one which shows maybe the equivalence between the natural resource of the grass and the labor, the depletable resource of the labor that I have to devote to a common project. And I raise that not to suggest that we can. Uh, that that the we can use kind of a, just a purely kind of transactional model to understand what's going on, but to ask whether, in fact, Ostrom's IAD framework, and this is really hard to talk about, because but I'm going to link it up in the show notes, and you can see these the charts that uh, that Mike and his co-authors have produced for the Knowledge Commons model, and then there's also a great review of 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 your paper, um, uh, Mike, by Eleanor Ostrom, I think 2012. I, I forget exactly when it came out, but um, but I, I'll link that one up too. Uh, to, just to suggest that maybe these aren't really different domains. And so why should we expect there to be a different kind of IAD institutional analysis and design? Is that what it stands for? I forget. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. So, th- yeah. so Christian, let me let me layer a couple of um, supplemental notes onto your point because I think at one in one sense you're absolutely right that there is one sense in which you can look at uh, the labor relevant to the production of intellectual resources as a depletable resource in a way that's completely the same as labor applicable to the the production or maintenance of a, a natural resource from the Ostrom tradition. But there there are two um, aspects that we are tuned into, two layers to the labor question that uh, potentially drive you in different directions. So uh, one is a, a technical argument that by which I mean actual technology, and one is a, a sort of a political argument. So let me give you the political argument first. Um, so by virtue of our having done this work over the last 10 years, not only have we gotten linked up with the folks in the U.S. who continue to do the Ostrom-style IAD-based research into natural resources domains, but we've also gotten linked up to people who are doing uh, commons research of one sort or another outside the U.S., especially in Europe. So there's a big cohort of folks over there, some lawyers, some uh, scholars in other fields who are interested in commons research, uh, much of which continuing just to extend the IAD framework in the Ostrom way, but have gotten interested in what we're doing as well. So we've gone to various conferences and things in Europe. And what we hear, especially what I hear when I'm over there talking to my commons research colleagues over there, there's a very heavy emphasis in their work on the idea of commoning. So they take the word commons and they turn it into a verb. And the idea here is that the most significant element to a commons institution for producing and managing resources is sort of the self-actualization value of participating in one of these self-governed bottom-up communities. That there is an ethical dimension to it from the standpoint of individual and collective identity for the human beings themselves. So it's a way of prioritizing the human capital investment and how it sort of enables uh, a conception of, of what it means to be human. And it prioritizes that over the actual resource itself. Hmm. Uh, and so that's what I mean by, by the idea of commons and commoning having a political dimension, because it takes what we were talking about earlier in terms of where Ostrom sort of got started as in opposition to Garrett Hardin, and it really pushes that idea to, in a very extreme way. Right. So the significance of commoning really is as a kind of quasi democratic, locally produced institution from the standpoint of generating what, as Joe, you said earlier, what Hart might call a form of law at a very local level. The fact that that communal law is applied to a particular resource set is kind of interesting, uh, but it's not the priority topic as you look at these little institutions. So I find that a very interesting perspective because it's not at all what that, you know, Kathy and Brett and I had in mind <laughs> when we first set down this right. path. I mean, that, it, from a history of ideas point, that sounds like it's got some continuity with things like the kibbutz movement and other things of that nature. Oh, absolutely. And and so just let me, let me footnote or punctuate uh, with an exclamation point, the point about kibbutzes. So one of the people who, for understandable reasons, got engaged with our work from an intellectual standpoint relatively early on was Yochai Benkler. Mm, right. 
right? Uh, so somebody whose uh, intellectual trajectory you know, very much aligned in certain respects with what we're interested in doing, although Yokai comes at it more from a conceptual or theoretical standpoint, and we're really trying to push a more empirical angle on, on very similar problems. But re for those of you uh, sort of listening, uh, Yokai was born and raised in Israel, uh, grew up on a kibbutz, and, and so sort of Yokai's sort of personal intellectual history uh, very much ties into that uh, sort of local, sustainable, self-governed community kind of angle on things as a political matter, as a matter of political philosophy and intellectual history. The particular resource that we're talking about, whether it's agricultural products or uh, copyrighted works, is sort of secondary from that angle. Mm. Uh, so there's sort of an interesting linkage of, of sort of you know scholarly history, intellectual history, uh, and and sort of personal history. So here's that's the political sort of elaboration of Christian's point about uh, labor and effort. So here's the technological elaboration. Um, again, partly drawing on Yokai's scholarly contribution. One of the things that Yokai Bankler was very interested in early on, we're talking 15 years or so ago, was the idea of spectrum in the telecommunications area, the idea that there should be something that would be referred to as a spectrum commons, that what has existed in modern American telecommunications law for the last 80 years, so allocation of exclusive rights in the broadcast spectrum, and then a regulatory structure through the Federal Communications Commission that helps to police uh, those property allocations. Yokai's argument was that that was uh, inefficient, that the technology existed to uh, have a much more uh, democratized allocation of spectrum rights that could be managed through combinations of uh, bottom-up governance uh, facilitated by sophisticated modern network technologies. Yokai was a bit ahead of his time as a technical matter, but from a conceptual perspective, he was very much advocating for a kind of commons management approach to telecom. So what's happened is that the technology has started to catch up. And I have colleagues here at the University of Pittsburgh who work in telecom, work on the technology side, who are now trying to teach engineers in the telecom space that commons management of the telecom spectrum is actually feasible, efficient, and good public policy. Now, what's interesting, I don't know whether that's eventually going to be true, let alone whether it's going to be adopted as a matter of, of policy anywhere. But what's interesting is that it means that the commons resource that we would be talking about, which is spectrum, right, telecommunications radio spectrum, there is no there's no labor involved except a couple of layers down the or up the, the ladder. Right? There are no commoners, there are no people there who are governing themselves and actualizing their humanity by participating in this collaborative bottom-up lawmaking exercise. It's all the technology allocating spectrum dynamically, I assume. Well, yeah, there have, to be, there have to be people writing protocols that are in the smart radios and other technological devices that take advantage of the fact that the spectrum isn't being allocated and managed in a top-down manner. True. So I, I'm not suggesting that people literally disappear from the domain entirely. <laughs> but but the, the point that I'm trying to make is that it's it, it, the, the telecom example really prioritizes the idea of resource management and the idea that it's the resource allocation 
question as a matter of exclusive exclusive ownership in a classic private property sense or some kind of uh, shared resource arrangement that really prioritizes the resource over the shared humanity of the people who are in the trenches doing the governance on a day-to-day basis. And that's really strikingly in contrast to this European-style model that I was describing a minute ago, where the particular resource that we're talking about isn't nearly as important as the shared humanity that comes out of the act of actively participating in this bottom-up community governance activity. Uh, so, so there is a, so are, does the commons perspective that Brett and Kathy and I are sort of arguing for uh, its adoption as an analytic tool. Does the commons perspective really prioritize the resource? Where does the resource come from? How is the resource governed? How is the resource sustained? How is the resource protected from whatever harm might come from the resource or to the resource? Does it prioritize the resource or does it prioritize the people? Does the commons perspective advocate for and teach us to understand behaviors, motivations, incentives, and payoffs from a humanity standpoint, where the resource, as Christian is suggesting, whether it's a tangible resource like the Ostrom-style agricultural products or an intangible resource like knowledge and information, there's not as much of a difference there as uh, as we might be thinking there is. Well, I mean, it seems like you can, you know, what you want to focus on, the people or the resource itself depends on the best way of achieving your goals in a particular situation. When I, when I teach my students like in property about the tragedy of the commons, I do it by, you know, I, I by sharing Garrett, Garrett Hardin's story in, in the book and then, and then telling them that uh, and, and showing its equivalence to prisoner's dilemma and doing some other things and, and, and how it relates to public goods, right? These are all re- basically the same underlying problem. Uh, and and then suggesting that in order for a tragedy of the commons to occur, you have to have four things, and they all have to be happening. Uh, you need um, you need um, uh, uh, a destructible resource uh, open to more than one user in a situation where self interest predominates and where cooperation is not possible. And that's conjunctive. You need all four. And right. if you knock out any one of those four, the tragedy doesn't happen. And so you can, you know, demonstrate situations where you have three of those but not four, you know, a family, right, where self-interest doesn't predominate and where there is some amount of cooperation, although as a parent, I can tell you not as much as you might like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I saw that when I got here today. (laughs) Or or a legal system, right, a legal system among unrelated people where basically you might have all all of the first three, but you have a system of cooperation through mutual coercion, kind of Garrett Hardin style, you know, uh, restraint. You can expand the common. You can use property by making the resource not open to more than one. This is fencing off the commons. And so there are multiple, you know, once you understand, once you think of the commons in that way, and this is not original to me, but once you think of it in that way and you think, okay, I've got, I've got a table with four legs and I can, I can knock this thing out by just knocking out any one of these legs. Now the argument doesn't work because you only need three legs for a table to stand up. So <laughs> it runs into some physical problems. But the, the basic idea is that these are the these are the four elements and you knock out any one of them, you don't have it. it now, what that doesn't suggest, though, is that uh, that we don't have to pay attention to uh, um, why people might cooperate, what what kinds of structures will get them to cooperate, what kinds of struct and, and when that is preferable to knocking out the second leg open to more than one user and just saying, oh, you know what, we're not going to cooperate. Let's just have fences. Uh, and you do whatever you want on your land, I'll do whatever I want on my land. Uh, or 
uh, you own whatever you create, I own whatever I create, and let's hope they somehow mix together, right? That's kind of the equivalent of fencing off the commons, the, the traditional IP regime. Um, not to gainsay, because even in a system of fences, you need common rules that will cause people to respect those fences. Um, so, so I think the, the way I see what you guys are doing and, and what Eleanor Ostrom is doing, and this is a, you know, I know this is a very naive observation, but I just want to get it out there, uh, is, is, you know, providing much more detail about how these different pathways, how these, uh, to a solution might evolve or what, how, how to make that choice between property and, and governance, between exclusion rules and, and governance rules. And what kinds of institutional designs will make that f- knocking out that fourth leg cooperation more attractive or less attractive? Like in, in her, I think in a review of your paper, she describes empirical work they did on on um, on on metropolitan policing organizations and their relative size. And it was really interesting kind of empirical research of that that you don't realize economies of scale in quite the same way for all policing functions. And so she, you should have you know certain anyway. This fascinating stuff, right? Because it's not. You can't just think your way to a solution in the abstract to a tragedy of the common situation without knowing more about the people who make it up, what their values are, uh, how, how what kinds of decisions they will have to make to solve the problem, what kind of resource is it. All of those go into it, and that's where I think you get this IAD framework. Um, anyway, I just wanted to back up a little bit because that gives me some some anchoring on you know the kinds of problems we're solving and what the what this very detailed framework and this very detailed interdisciplinary analysis that you're calling for what on what problems does that bear i don't do, is that a reasonable so, way of yeah i i totally agree with the way you framed that and i don't think it's naive at all i actually think it's it's stated elegantly uh and, and it's the the simplicity of it though gives it your observation which is very close to our observation a lot of power um it in one sense we're all sort of confronting the same challenge, which is that the the tragic commons story with, with which you know a typical property law course begins, with which a typical IP survey course begins, as Joe was describing, is enormously powerful as a, as a metaphor or as an allegory. But as you say, its actual realization and practice is really contingent on a lot of things lining up at the same time as an empirical matter. So what so the the lesson that we derive from that is is that we've always been surprised and now I say when I say we I mean Brett and Kathy and myself surprised at the the power the rhetorical power that the tragic common story exercises over intellectual property law exercises over intellectual property policy given it's it's sort of weak predictive power, right? So if the tragic commons argument requires, as you say, four independent things all to line up simultaneously, in the IP world, uh, sort of policymakers and judges and advocates have sort of uncritically accepted the assumption that all four of those things actually do apply in the real world, right? And then and then move forward from them. And so, into a significant degree, what we're doing in this commons project is simply pushing back on that. And to say, look, let's look at ground-level behaviors, ground-level organization, ground-level production and use of this stuff, and see, does the tragic common story hold up? And if not, what's going on? Well, I think you see this in like open source software and and communities of, you know, whether it's like video game communities or whatever else where people are doing work 
and it challenges the story because it seems like you've got all four. I mean, these are self-interested people who don't have um, who don't have an automatic incentive to cooperate, et cetera, et cetera. But what's really happening is that they they are even though they're self-interested, their interest might be in reputation rather than consuming the resource, right? Rather than investing in leisure. So they'll invest they'll they'll invest in work rather than leisure towards this community, work for this community rather than leisure, which doesn't help the community and become a free rider. Partly because what they're trying to consume is not the resource itself, but also the uh, the reputational benefits that come from participating. And so there's right. not just one good that's ha- – so, Yeah, which they believe yeah. that they will appropriate to themselves and, and don't actually have to share. Right. Um, and so they can both contribute and get the benefit of the contribution in a way unique to themselves so they don't have the same – undermined incentive story that you might tell in some yeah, it's more of a warm glow story than an altruism story and i'm not denying altruism can exist but but at least you can kind of see why it looks like you have all four elements in situations like that but in fact you really don't because that self-interest element is more complicated right and you need this whole ethnographic story to understand there are multiple resources in this community there are multiple kinds of preference structures uh, and, and multiple things which are preferred. And anyway, I, now I, I don't think it's a Pollyanna point to say uh, it might be, but I don't think it is to say that that I think one advantage of 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 uh, Mike and Kathy and Brett's strategy is you don't have to decide at the front end which is the special case and which is the usual case. If what you bring to the exercise is a set of concerns and questions that you're trying to explore in a community that actually exists, because you can take as a given that the community exists, you can then go find out what its concerns are, what its resources are, what those resource dilemmas are. And and maybe it turns out that the tragic story is one that could have been more uh, frequent, and then they figured out how to flip it. Maybe the tragic story almost never would have come to pass. Almost <laughs> with, with a, a whole range of possible options, and you don't have to decide any of that at the front end. You just have to ask questions. So this is kind of like dim sets, right? The famous story of how property develops in the first instance, right? Why do we see property systems here and governance systems over there? And dim sets's story, you know, it, it now famous story is that it arises from solutions to tragedies of the commons in different scenarios. Um, it's not nearly as detailed as like the IAD framework or what you guys are doing, but it's a similar kind of approach to what you're describing, don't you think, Jim? Yeah, well, that, I mean, it strikes me that, and I don't know any uh, anything like the level of detail about, about Harold Demsetz's work, and I'm not trying to slam it by saying it, it strikes me yeah, reputationally. That, that, I have to say, that means you are about to slam it. <laughs> <laughs> it strikes me reputationally is it's a bit more like, you know, Rousseau's Noble Savage story than it is some some actual empirical investigation. I mean, Ostrom and her students and, and successors and Mike and Kathy and Brad and the people who are doing work in this knowledge commons area. I mean, that that's actual hard roll up the sleeve, go out and talk to people kind of stuff. Um, and I, I, I think Demsets is a little bit of armchair economic theorizing. You know, I love my armchair. <laughs> I do. And I love I'm sitting in an armchair right now. I don't I don't knock it. I don't knock it at all. I mean, I don't do any of this stuff. So I don't you know, I'm, I'm about the laziest person I know. Uh, but well, uh, so let me add add to this. There is a degree of armchair research associated with what we're doing because we're trying to be we're trying to argue that it can be extended historically as well as usable in terms of looking at contemporary stuff, right? So if you're you know we have colleagues who have been looking very aggressively at open source software communities or 
you know, as you know, video gamers or some of the, the social norms in IP literature that's gotten very uh, prevalent in the last few years, which is really, really interesting stuff, or, uh, or Jessica Silby's uh, investigations of uh, how creative people think about what they do. Uh, that does involve getting out into the field and talking to people and sitting down with them carefully over time. But if you're trying to figure out what was going on in some collaborative creative environment 100 years ago or 200 years ago, by definition, you can't get out into the field. You can only get into the archives at best. Uh, so, so what we're trying to do in part is build a research enterprise that allows for both styles of approaches to speak to each other, right? So it's not just a matter of collecting individual case studies in a deeply ethnographic way, but to collect the, the deep case studies in a way that says down the road, they're, they're composed in a, in a way that you can do some systematic comparative work. And mm. this was, I think, the real, the real genius of Ostrom's project and one of the ways in which we really are trying to, at the very early stages, emulate what she was, she built, she, she did over a lifetime uh, of work, which is uh, build a portfolio of the research across different domains. So medicine and science, but also arts and culture, um, uh, and to say that there are there are commonalities as well as differences from a structural standpoint, from an institutional standpoint, so that eventually, you know, do what we're all supposed to be doing as scholars and researchers, which is derive generalizable knowledge from our ways of looking at the world, um, rather than just limiting ourselves to the armchair theorizing, uh, but using the whatever we're doing, whether it's in our offices or in the field, to sort of build a build a knowledge base that then you know you could say to the policymakers or to a, a court or whatever you want to do with it down the road here is a here is a body of knowledge rather than just an intuition based on having talked to the astrophysicists which is what I did or to the the, the you know the the user generate the the user innovation people who built uh, windsurfers or or built airplanes or whatever it might have been at any particular point in time, that there are ways to to cross-pollinate the lessons from each of these individual cases. That, that I think, is the, the layer of what we're doing that I really want to make sure gets people take away from uh, this conversation, that, that the way to take the tragedy, tragedy of the commons argument and disentangle it and figure out where it works and where it doesn't work is the empirical research, but then you have to do the empirical research in a way that you can generalize whatever more complicated story uh, as an empirical matter that you're going to derive. Yeah, because you're asking questions like, what kinds of uh, what kinds of people with what kinds of histories and what kinds of values and what roles deciding what kinds of questions under what constraints and with what other kinds of people, uh, in or and, and then you know, having identified that structure, how did it all work out and how does it compare to other structures asking similar questions? You know, it's a, it's inherently interdisciplinary, but it also is deeply realistic. I mean, that's because it says, okay, these are a bunch of human beings trying to do something together under these constraints. What's the best way to do it? And, and I just don't see how you can get around uh, getting to, I mean. And the rigor comes from a methodological uh, framework that you apply consistently across those domains yeah. right, so that you can make some apple to apple to apple comparison. I, and I've got, I guess I have one last question, uh, Mike. Um, 
you study, I was fascinated because I love the space stuff. So you study Galaxy Zoo, this, or you talk about Galaxy Zoo in, in this in this piece, which is a it, one of these kind of SETI at home type things where a bunch of people are asked to come in and, and in this case, identify um, uh, the morphology of different kinds of galaxies. Is this a spiral galaxy? If so, spinning what way? Is this an elliptical galaxy? Based on this bit, huge Sloan digital sky survey of the, the tremendous amount of data and no... Um, no, 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 not even all the astronomers working could possibly kind of grok through all this data in, in, a, in a reasonable time. So you put it out to everybody and people join for whatever reason. So you study this and you ask, like, why does this, why does this work? And, it, and that, that's a hugely successful project. Is there some selection bias? I mean, not selection bias. I guess it would be, I guess it would be selection bias. Sometimes I get my heuristics and biases all mixed up in terms of the labels. Uh, but like, is the tendency among um, um, among you and, and Johai Benkler and others, I, I, I just don't know the answer to this, so I could be totally off base. It seems like there's always, you know, when I read one of these things, it's always studying a successful instance. Yep. Um, and, and it's easier in the natural resource context to study a, a random sample, you know, because, you know, you can study failed instances of harvesting natural resources. But it seems to me that that commons, cultural commons which fail are going to be inherently difficult to observe because they never really arose. You know what I mean? Um, I do know what you mean. Um, so let me just give a couple of comments in reply, because I think it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a really important challenge, right? So why you know, the, the, the galaxy zoo excerpt that is in the paper that you read is based on a much longer chapter. That's in the first collection of cases that we published two years ago. Um, and, there is a kind of selection bias in the documentation of the of the cases we chose because we were to, to put that first collection of cases together and to get people to do the work and contribute the the research to our our collection. Uh, we were really to a significant degree relying on volunteers, um, and so we were not. This is a matter of practicalities of of scholarly effort uh, to to get to put our commons research program on the agenda of a bunch of other IP scholars and economists and historians who were sort of temperamentally interested in what we were doing, but not necessarily inclined simply to be sort of executing a research on case studies that we assigned them because we wanted a uh, sort of a perfectly representative selection of successful commons and unsuccessful commons and things in between. So we sort of got we got cases in that first set that, including the Galaxy Zoo case, that were of interest to people. Uh, I picked the Galaxy Zoo thing to write about in part because I had been to a conference at the National Academies in Washington, D.C., talking about big data science and heard a lot about astronomy and astrophysics. And so my interest in that stuff uh, came out of that. Uh, and, and so we're trying as we go forward working with people producing cases and producing cases of our own to be a bit more uh, sort of conscious about how to steer the subject matter, both in, in terms of broad domains as well as in the selection of particular cases. What I mean is that the second book of collected case studies that I'm in the middle of editing right now focuses entirely on commons mechanisms in uh, medicine, medical science, medical research, life sciences research, uh, sort of different angles, different projects underway there. The, the first book, which came out two years ago, uh, is very eclectic, uh, astrophysics, but science and medicine and history, as well as contemporary stuff. So that, that's one comment on the sort of why these cases in, in the hopper versus others. The second uh, thing that you raise, like, what about failed commons? You know, 
What's the likelihood that there would be such a thing, let alone be able to study such a thing? Uh, I actually do have the beginnings of a, of a working portfolio of, uh, of cases that I would like to get back to and look more deeply at of, of um, we'll call them sort of information collections or data archives or, or things of that character that are potential illustrations of commons institutions, commons, commons governance of, uh, of, of sort of collections of, of knowledge uh, things that for one reason or another did get underway, had some limited life, and then fell apart for lack of funding, for lack of technical infrastructure, for lack of uh, investment by the human beings whose labor would have been needed to, to keep them going. Um, there's a, a senior scholar who is fantastic at UCLA named Christine Borgman, uh, who just came out with a book uh, she, uh, about big data and big data science and thinking about big data and big data science from an information science perspective. So, so Christine Borgman is not a lawyer, but she's asking a lot of questions about management of large collections of data uh, that are close cousins of the questions that we're asking in our knowledge commons work. And uh, if you read her recent book on big data, she actually ends up adopting a lot of the Ostrom style thinking uh, without, I think, at all being aware of the work that we were doing. And she has a ton of examples and illustrations in her work of failed data archives. Hmm. Uh, so I've made a lot of notes about things that I need to circle back to. Uh, and and it, it could easily be the case that there's a book to be written uh, a series of case studies uh, that sort of a, a counterpart to one of my favorite books uh, from about 20, 25 years ago, which, which was called Why Buildings Fall Down. And it was a, a series of case studies of, of signature architectural projects that literally collapsed unexpectedly. Uh, and it was a way to derive engineering lessons from failure rather than from success. So I was, think you Was that a Petrosky book? If it wasn't, it should be. But uh, it, it was not. Uh, I can send you. I can track it down and send you guys the. It's the, the kind of thing he would write. It is. It is. And I, I've got I love it. Petrosky's work. Um, It'll be in the show so notes. I, so, so I think uh, Christian's question, uh, I think, is an incredibly important one because I do think that over the long haul of the Commons research, um, sort of the proof of concept. The fact, you know, the idea that this empirical inquiry does teach us something requires not just deriving lessons from the winners, right? Right, right. Yeah, it has to help you learn how to see the things that failed um, as failures of this sort of enterprise and be able to talk about why they failed. Right. I mean, if you had eight Wikipedia contestants... You know, what was it that made Wikipedia succeed and the others fail? It, it could be that they were all set up the same. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that there were. I'm just saying, imagine this, right? Right. Yep. And, and so maybe an important criterion is that, you know, whatever you're producing has a bunch of free riding opportunities, which is what you ultimately don't want to make the thing succeed. It's nothing but free riders. But that's why people eventually get involved. And the one that wins is the one that has the most people involved and has the chance of converting people from free riders into producers. I, I'm just kind of spinning things out there. Right. But you can imagine lots of kind of randomness where where if you just study the winner, you're going to observe institutional structures that you think are really important. But in fact, those were all there in the losers uh, that, that were beaten out, right? <laughs> right. That's, but that, that's uh, – that that's the importance, as as Mike says, right? Of studying, you know, studying why why buildings fall down, et cetera. Yeah. So, so right. and and there's again, I'm always going to add layers to this. So let me add two quick ones on this point, which is, one is that we know from just the 
the small sample set that we've collected so far, that these commons institutions change over time, right? That you know, even Wikipedia or Linux or some of the sort of the better known sort of casual examples of these kinds of combined digital resources are, are not static, stable things. It's not like you get to a certain point of stability and success and then you're sort of cruising forward all the way from that point on. You have to sort of watch for uh, comings and goings and changes in governance structures and, and sort of micro-level successes and failures along the way. And that's part of the ethnographic uh, character of what we're doing is to not only watch how people get to cruising altitude in a commons area, but sort of how you, uh, so, or how the people who are involved in it maintain or fail to maintain uh, that same altitude and, and when and how and why uh, adjustments get made. Um, the, the second sort of added layer is that, that asking these questions about evolution, asking questions about success and failure, also requires being sensitive to sort of what level of abstraction or what level of generality you're asking the question at. Uh, so let me give you a concrete illustration. One of the uh, early sort of applications of this research framework that the three of us put together was a paper about six, seven years ago now that talked about research universities as knowledge commons. So, so the idea here was that there is, there is something there's some set of attributes that exists in the world that defines the research university as a category, uh, rather than trying to diagnose the character of any particular university. That, that there's something distinctive about universities as a, as, a, as a type of institution, and knowledge commons is a way of thinking productively about how knowledge gets generated, how it gets stored, how it gets distributed in a university and then at the edge of the university into whatever exists beyond it, the free market or the community or what have you. Um, so what was one of the things that was interesting about that paper on universities, of course, is looking at the history of universities, right? So the history of universities as a thing goes back, give or take a thousand years. There's a lot of commonality over that thousand years, but there's also an enormous amount of change. and once you get the, to the more specific layer, instead of talking about universities as a class, talk about any particular university, whether it's an elite university like Harvard or a state university like the University of Georgia uh, or University of Pittsburgh uh, or a, a more regional or even local university, uh, you're more likely to find successes and failures, right? Universities come, universities go, universities change in some fundamental way at that more specific level, while the class of universities, the concept of a research university, has a much more stable, longitudinal existence. Even while the category changes some as well, uh, it changes more slowly, it changes over a longer time horizon, whereas any particular university changes, uh, relatively speaking, more quickly and more dramatically. Hmm. That's got to be it, don't you think? Yeah. Wow. So much to think about. I love to talk about this stuff. And we love to hear it. This is, uh, this has been great. And I appreciate you coming back on the show and, and, and for your detailed comments about my piece that you sent us not too long ago, I, I should give you a public thanks for taking the time to, to read what I wrote, sending such detailed comments. Well, and, and down the road at any, any time, uh, I'd love to come back again because I have a, a big project that I'm trying to work through about soccer. 
Seriously, my interest in governance, which Joe knows goes way back even beyond this common stuff, uh, extends into such exotic things as soccer, pro soccer, amateur soccer, domestic, international, all levels. And I'm, I'm trying to sort of disentangle all, all of that. So if you ever want to have a uh, do a podcast about governance and soccer, I would be totally up for that. That's cool. I've got one about markets, which includes as one of the examples, um, uh, the labor market in European soccer. So that would be fascinating. What I love about this possible episode <laughs> is that all I will need to do is say hello and then I can just stop, right? And let you two talk. Cause I don't know. I mean, I know a soccer ball from like, other sporting equipment like i could probably reliably identify it um beyond that i think that's i'm pretty much at my limit at that moment so i could just learn from you two that'd be great well but joe your participation i think would be critical because we need somebody who is completely naive about the subject matter to keep us honest ah this is like uh the platonic dialogue the mino where they drag out the the slave to ask him questions about geometry and prove that all knowledge is uh, is an act of remembering. Um, so you, you will get me to you will get me to remember the true the fundamental truths of soccer. <laughs> and it would, and, and, it would be a nice change too because it's usually my role is usually the one of the knife. The, yeah, right. So there nice. you go. There all right. Go. We'll enjoy your bizarre weather, and we will enjoy ours. <laughs> This has been a blast, as always. One of these days, we'll have to do it face-to-face. -face. That'd be great. Absolutely. Talk okay. to you soon, Mike. I'm going to hit okay. stop. There we Thanks, go. Thanks, guys.